Church of the Redeemer is blessed with the curse of a quiver full of professors. So I'd like to begin as a very young professor, even earlier and younger than Dana Harris was at the time. I was a fan of a German scholar by the name of Adolf Schlatter. At the time, his awful German had never been translated into English, so I had to read him in English, I mean in German. So now he's translated, Gott sei Dank. At the time, you could only read his uh, book on Jesus, uh, Auf Deutsch, and I put to memory a line of his that has been very influential for me in understanding Jesus. His sentence was, Der erste Gedanke Jesu war der Gottesgedanke. Sounds German, doesn't it? The first thought or idea of Jesus was his thought about God. Now this sounds like A.W. Tozer in German. Schlatter was and remains right. Jesus was a God-soaked, God-shaped, and God-pleasing first-century Galilean Jew. I now want to shift lanes only slightly from Schlatter's God-centered Jesus to this morning's claim, to a Jesus who centered his walk with God, to adopt Schlatter or adapt Schlatter, I say, the Christian's first thought is about the God who reveals himself in Jesus, the incarnation and the revelation of God. This is what makes a person a Christian. The Gospels are Jesus-shaped revelations about God. The most important question any human can be asked is the question, who do you think Jesus is? Or what do you think of Jesus? The answer always begins with, I believe Jesus is which is confession. The question is the question of first century evangelism of Jews. They were asking people what they thought of Jesus. They had never heard of the four spiritual laws, which is good. The answer given in the first century by Jews in Galilee and Judea shaped that person's life. If they said, Jesus was Lord, you were called to obey him. If they said Jesus was the teacher, you were called to listen and practice his teachings. If you said that Jesus was the Savior, you found salvation and redemption in Jesus. If Jesus was the servant of Isaiah, you saw him in suffering terms. If you said that Jesus was the kingdom agent, You lived kingdom realities with him and through him. If you said Jesus was the Son of God, you were saying that you were swearing allegiance to him as the king. If you said that Jesus was the Son of Man, well, you had to figure out why Jesus spoke of himself as the Son of Man. And since Father Bill Richardson has endorsed and sanctified the use of baseball illusions... I want to refer to Ricky Henderson, 
who when he was interviewed, never said I. He always said, Ricky thinks this and Ricky thinks that. Okay, that's all I did with sports, okay? So Jesus spoke of the third, in the third person when he talked about this son of man. It's a very interesting expression. And it sounds like Daniel chapter 7, but it could sound like Ezekiel. And this is what makes scholars scholars, is taking positions on whether it's Daniel or Ezekiel. But if you think that this is about Daniel 7, you just authorize Jesus as the person who will be elevated and ascended before the Ancient of Days to receive the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Quite a statement. And Jesus speaks of this in the third person. Each title for Jesus, each label, each category spells out different implications. Overlapping and complementary, yes, but distinct, but still they implicated the person. The confessor implicates herself or himself in her or his answer. You identified yourself by how you answered the question, who do you think Jesus is? Like, I am a Calvinist. You better know what that means if you're going to say that, all right? Or I am a musician. I, I just have a feeling that Amanda practiced a few times as a child, longer than I did, to be able to do what you do on that keyboard, which is sort of magical, but I don't know what she's doing. I took, I got through the first book, and in the second book, when my music teacher told me to raise my hands like this, I went home and I said to my mom, I'm never doing this again. And she let me out of the lessons. And she was the choir director. If you're an artist, you practice at this. You develop your skill and your form and your medium. And I don't know all that's involved in being an artist, so I'll just stop there. But if you say you're a progressive, you have a political stance on things. And if you say you're a conservative, you have a different political stance. It implicates you with these terms. And that's why lots of people don't want to use terms. They don't want to be implicated with what the term means. You could say, I am a race, an anti-racist. This implicates you in a certain social agenda. Or you could say, I'm an archaeologist, and my husband is a long-winded lawyer. All, all thanks and glory to Joel and Deb. I'm uh, riffing off of something that Deb said. Each of these implicates the confessor. In more than beliefs, they are expected to behave accordingly. Okay, one's answer to the question, who is Jesus, implicates them, none more so than Peter in our text today. But Jesus begins with a very general question. Who do people say, this is an interesting question, who do people say the Son of Man is? This sounds a little bit like a Pew Research poll. What do people think? And here is the result, the results of a recent Pew research poll. Christians continue to make up a majority of the U.S. populace, but their share of the adult population is 12 points lower in 2021 than it was in 2011. Currently, about 3 in 10 U.S. adults are religious nuns. That is, they don't want to be identified 
by any religion. People who describe themselves in other categories like atheists, agnostics, or nothing in particular when asked about their religious identity. Christians now outnumber nuns by a ratio of little more than two to one. In 2007, when the center began asking its current question about religious identity, Christians outnumbered nuns by five to one. So our culture is changing and the polls are revealing. The gospel text today with that question, who do people say the Son of Man is, is sort of like a poll. And the answers of the disciples are like a poll, the answers. But the gospel question and answers reveals a profoundly Bible-soaked community. It's a religious society. They didn't say Jesus is a politician. They didn't say Jesus was a philosopher or an educator. Their answers come straight from the Bible. But it's not just straight from the Bible. They think that he's one of the figures in the Bible. Sort of like, come back to life, read of Evis. At the time of Jesus, Jews speculated quite intensively at times on who one like a son of man in Daniel 7 was. The two major candidates were Enoch and Elijah, both of whom were taken because it was believed, they didn't die, it was believed that God had reserved them for a future role in Israel's story. So there were questions about this, and there's a whole book called First Enoch and another book called Second Enoch. And they're all about Enoch because people wondered about Enoch. And they identify in one of the, in First Enoch, called the Parables of Enoch, um, a section of First Enoch, uh, they identify Enoch as the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7. So Jesus is entering into a little theological poll question. So our text opens a window on some speculation in the first century about the meaning and identity of the Son of Man in Daniel 7. Some say that he was John the Baptist come back to life, the decapitated prophet, critic of empire, Antipas's enemy, come back to life. Interesting. Some thought he might be Elijah, who was a prophet predicted in not only the Old Testament, but also in some Jewish texts, to someone who would return at the end of history and usher in the kingdom of God. Others thought he was Jeremiah. We're not quite sure why Jeremiah was picked out of the hat, but it was. Or one of the prophets. But a common element here is they thought Jesus was a prophet. Interesting category. On the landscape of Jesus in Galilee and Judea in the first century, there was sort of like a hierarchy of leader titles and names. At the top was a king, all right? Antipas was for Galilee, and Caiaphas was running Jerusalem. He's the high priest. And then there were priests, and there were prophets, a pretty high title to be called a prophet. There were scribes. There were Pharisees. There were rabbis, probably. This term may not have meant what it came to mean later, but seems to be a teacher. It means my great one or my teacher and a synagogue leader. These are the titles that were optioned 
were on the option for Jesus. So the poll returns an answer that puts Jesus on the list, sort of pretty high. Prophet. They all think you're a prophet. And that's true. Prophets in the first century, this is a social media quiz, had riz. Does anybody know what riz means? Ryan, was it mean? Charisma? Yeah. I knew you'd know. I didn't know. I had to look it up. So, If you know social media, though, Jesus had riz in the first century to be called that. So the people, the pollsters' answers, Jesus is a prophet. Jesus got what he looked for. He got people talking, thinking. Now he asks a very personal question. So who do you think I am? That's a switch a little bit from son of man to I, although son of man can mean I. His question shifts from what people think, what the -the run-of-the-mill Galilean humans think, to you. He wants them to declare who they think they are, who they think he is, and implicate themselves in their answer. Who do the disciples think I am, Jesus says. Now, in all the committee meetings that the disciples had, I have special access to this, and all their prayer meetings and planning sessions, Peter was always the first one to talk. So Peter speaks up in this context. His answer is utterly stunning and unanticipated because it moves outside the box because everybody thinks he's a prophet. Everybody's connecting him to John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Peter gives a very specific answer with significant implications. He does not think Jesus is the ordinary Jewish leader, a male with authority, even as high authority as a God-directed message of a prophet. He's not a priest. He's not a scribe. He's not a synagogue leader. He's not a rabbi, even though lots of riz Christians today like to speak of Jesus as a rabbi. That's not the way the disciples or Jesus talked about himself. Peter says what? We have three Gospels who record this, and they all differ. So here are the answers of Peter. In Mark, you are the Messiah. In Luke, you are God's Messiah. And in Matthew, giving a little clarification himself probably, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. We could create a historical Peter class, decide what Peter actually said, and have lengthy discussions with no results or consensus. The common element, though, is pretty clear. He thought he was the Messiah. And let's be clear, if you think he's the Messiah, you probably think he's the Messiah of God. And if you think he's the Messiah, you think he's the son of the living God, because that's what Messiah means. So, Jesus is the Messiah. Messiah it is, then. That's the answer to the question. And if you say that Jesus is the Messiah, you are implicated in Jesus as the Messiah. You and I are implicated when we make this confession. 
Now, we are fancy in our creedal confession. We don't quite use Jewish categories, but this is the preeminent Jewish category in the first century. A Messiah is an anointed king. He's your king, which means Antipas is not in Galilee, which means Pilatus, Pilate, is not in Judea. And it also means that Tiberius in Rome, hanging out on the island of Capri at this time, was not the Messiah either, that Jesus was the true king. This kind of puts you in a corner. You call Jesus Messiah, it means that Israel's long history and story has a story to tell about this single man walking in Galilee. He is the point and the climax and fulfillment of that story. And it gives us a story to tell because we now have a storyteller by the name of Jesus who tells our story. It means that Jesus is the king, and this king brings liberation and salvation and justice and peace from Rome. You are saying you find Jesus to be the liberator, to be the savior, to be the bringer of peace. If Jesus is the Messiah, since he's king, he brings the kingdom of God. And it has now been launched when you confess Jesus to be this Messiah. Kings, as I've said before, without a kingdom are called bloggers. <laughs> Kings with a kingdom, that's a big thing. And Jesus has a kingdom. You are in his kingdom. It makes you a citizen called to allegiance to the king. Calling Jesus Messiah implicated Peter in a way of life, and it implicated all 12 of the apostles if they agreed with him, and they probably did. This confession has colossal implications, and I'd like to look at three of those in our text today in Matthew 16. If you confess Jesus as Messiah, you now know God in a special way. In Matthew 16, 17, we read this. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. This is really quite the statement. This is a statement that flesh and blood cannot put together the story about Jesus and derive the conclusion that he's the Messiah. Something was added to what they had seen, and it was a fresh revelation from God. This is an apocalypse from God to Peter. This is a revelation. This is the unveiling of a secret. This is insider knowledge. It's a hope now fulfilled, a secret now known, a quest now at its goal. Perceiving and genuinely confessing Jesus as Messiah is knowledge given to you and to me by the work of God and His Spirit. We might think we're smart, but that's not what this text teaches us, that God has worked in our life. But I also want to say that it's a true claim, but it's a true claim 
that has danger connected to it when we become elitists. When we begin to think in almost Gnostic ways that we are the only ones who understand anything. Yes, we have a hermeneutic. We see the world. We see life. We see the story. We see the newspaper. We see Twitter or X. We see all these things through who Jesus is. So we have that knowledge, but that knowledge is a gift from God. So there's a humility in connected in being connected to confessing Jesus as Messiah. A second thing that this text teaches us is that if we confess Jesus as the Messiah, we join an unstoppable movement. Verse 18, I tell you that you are Peter, Petros in Greek, and on this rock, Petra, doesn't show up in English very well, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Some translations have, I tell you that you are rocky and on this rock I will build my church. That's clever because that's what is going on in the Greek text. But this is an idea that Peter is the rock. And this has um, done a little bit of damage to the unity of the church between Roman Catholics and everybody else. And we ask the question all the time, you know, the, the Hebrew word, Aramaic word is kepha, and that's where we get Cephas. But rock is the word that is used here in the Greek form. What is the rock? There are two possible answers, yea, three. Peter, his confession, or both? Both. I, I don't think that this is just Peter. But it is Peter in his confession, and I think they put together pretty well. That confession is the foundation of the church. When we confess Jesus to be the Messiah, we enter a world in which we are implicated in the life of the church. And it's an unstoppable movement. This rock is impregnable. It is undefeatable. It is unassailable. The rock will last and endure. The forces of darkness, the shadows of evil, the wily ways of wormwood, and the grotesqueness of Gollum cannot crack or displace this rock. This rock is firm, and it will last eternally. God and God's justice will eventually prevail. The church is so tied to Jesus that Jesus declares the church as victorious. And we are called to join in this movement of the church. It doesn't make us the most significant people in the world, but we are connected to the God who is the most significant person in the world, and Jesus. Now the third implication, colossal implication, I think in this text is that if you confess Jesus as the Messiah, you are called to become an agent of forgiveness. Look at verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I'll, I'll tell a story. When I was a high school junior, 
I was handed a key by a high school senior on the basketball team. It was a key to the high school, to the main doors, to all the classroom doors, to the locker room, to the coach's office in the locker room, and to the gymnasium, and that's all that mattered. And I and my friends, and sometimes Chris was there with us, would play basketball on Sunday afternoon in the gym, and we would turn on the lights, and we turned on the scoreboard and the microphone, and somebody would usually announce the game that we were playing with our friends. And it was a master key to the school. It was awesome. It was magical. You can't do that today, I know. You'd probably get arrested for doing this sort of thing, but these were the good days when you could. One time, I was walking into the school, and a high school teacher said, I forgot my keys. I said, I'll let you in. (laughs) But I knew from then I might be in a little bit of trouble. And my dad had to talk to me. He was a teacher. So was Chris's dad. They were both teachers. And they knew that I had a key. But, you know, I mean, all we were doing was playing basketball. So leave us alone. And they did. So Peter has that kind of key, and it's even a better key. It's a key to the kingdom of God. Now, when I was a high school junior, that gymnasium was the kingdom of God. It was the only one that mattered. All right? But we have become forgiveness agents in this text. And this language, keys to the kingdom of God, you know, the Pharisees thought they had it, but they didn't, Matthew 23. But he has this capacity to bind and to loose, and this is connected both to interpretation and to forgiveness in the Jewish world. And in Matthew chapter 18, just two chapters later, this key to the kingdom, in essence, is given to all the disciples. So this becomes uh, my warrant for thinking that we have become agents of forgiveness in our world today. Because we confess Jesus as Messiah, we can mediate forgiveness in our world, and we can grant forgiveness, and we can withhold forgiveness according to this key's language. So I want to end today with Mother Amanda's ending from last week. I didn't ask for permission, but I can ask for forgiveness easier than permission. (laughs) It's a good time to ask for it, isn't it? She said, what do we learn from this story about Joseph, about how we can partner with the Holy Spirit to become the kind of people who are ready and able to forgive and to be reconciled? How can we, she asked, lay the groundwork, train for forgiveness and reconciliation, regardless of the outcome, which is not in our control? And she gave us three points. First, we lay the groundwork for reconciliation when we practice truth-telling, repentance, and forgiveness. Second, we lay the groundwork to become these kinds of people for forgiveness and reconciliation when we prioritize the restoration of those who have been injured or wounded. And last, we lay the groundwork for reconciliation 
when we release our timelines for it. That's a very wise point. Peter has that key. But it's a key that lets people into the kingdom. And he closes the kingdom. But this key has been given to you and to me, according to this text. As disciples of Jesus, you and I have the key to forgiveness. We are agents of God's grace, mediators of God's forgiveness, but only in the sense that we are charged with the mission to pass it on. We are not the originators of grace or forgiveness, but the agents of the God who is a forgiving God. We pass grace from God to others. When do we do this? We do this when we pass the peace. We do this when we hear the words of absolution from Amanda, who is mediating the grace of God to us from God to us. When we walk forward to take the Eucharist, when we eat the bread and drink the wine. And when Ethan utters these words, we exit as agents of grace and forgiveness on mission for the Messiah. So, let us confess Jesus to be the Messiah with full awareness that now we're hooked into a way of living. Thank you.